Welcome to the teacher and the preacher. This program is all about the importance of coming to understand that the Christian community and the Jewish community have more in common than we have been led to believe. Rather than seeing each other as against each other, we need to come to a point of seeing that the statement that our country is a Judeo-Christian nation is much more than just a mere statement, but truly reflects the reality of our nation as it was and should remain. Every week there will be an interesting dialogue about the issues that have divided Jews and Christians and how we can move in bridging the gaps and see that by talking about the issues, we can better move in the direction of having more unity. Unity that will heal and help bring together a nation that is under attack by the forces of atheism, secularism, and a breakdown of family values. Join us now for a discussion between the teacher and the preacher. Welcome to The Teacher and the Preacher. Thank you for joining us this weekend. I'm the preacher, Dave McGarra. And I'm the teacher, Harold Berman. And we are thrilled to welcome back from last week, Lee Pollack. Uh, For those of you who joined us last week, you know that Lee is fascinating in terms of telling us about Winston Churchill and specifically his relationship to Israel in the early years and his relationship to the Jews. So for those of you who didn't join us, I'll just uh, give you his, his bio again. Lee Pollack is an acclaimed writer, historian, and public speaker on the life and times of Winston Churchill. He has written about Churchill for the Wall Street Journal, the New Criterion, and the Daily Beast, and he has appeared on CBS, the BBC, and other media outlets in the U.S. and Britain. Lee has spoken about Churchill's legacy and leadership at venues ranging from the U.S. House of Representatives, the Pentagon, and the U.S. Supreme Court, to leading universities, history museums, nonprofits, and clubs. Lee is a director, advisor to the board, and member of the Operating Committee of the International Churchill Society, and previously served as the Society's Executive Director. He is also the recipient of the Society's prestigious Chartwell Award. A native of Montreal, Canada, Lee is a graduate of McGill University and holds a master's degree from the University of Chicago. He is the author of a forthcoming book, Action This Day, Adventures with Winston Churchill. And last week with Lee, we discussed Churchill's early years, his formative years, and what uh, cemented his connection to the Jews and his first trip to uh, what was then Palestine was what was to become Israel. And we're going to, if you didn't, uh, if you didn't hear that, you can go to our website, www.teacherandthepreacher.com and listen to the archive broadcast. And you can listen actually to all of our archive broadcasts there. But we're going to go on this week. And Lee, welcome again to the show. Thank you. And maybe we can just pick up where we left off. We, you know, we talked last week about how Churchill, uh, his formative years, he, he really formed him really as a contrarian, which served him so well throughout his life. But as part of that, his relationship to the Jews and when the whole world around him was, was not so um, inclined toward the Jews, he, he, was a, uh, he, he was a supporter and he made friends with uh, Chaim Weizmann and took that first trip to what was then Palestine uh, in the early 1920s. So I, I guess we, we talked about the Balfour Declaration and basically saying that what was then Palestine was going to become the homeland of the Jewish people. But uh, Churchill, like a lot of uh, great figures, is complex, not not so black and white. And, and we also have in 1922 the, the famous or infamous white paper then re- restricting Jewish immigration. How, how did he see these two uh, documents as uh, coexisting? Yeah, the British policy towards Palestine evolved. Um, um, Churchill was not as directly involved in it. Um, as I mentioned, he was secretary 
of state for the colonies in 1921 when he came to Palestine on that visit that we, we discussed. His political career shifted over the, during the 1920s and 30s. He was Chancellor of the Exchequer. So he wasn't directly involved in government policy as it related to Palestine. Um, but he um, remained a fervent supporter of the promises of the Balfour Declaration. And in particular, um, to the extent he was involved with these issues, was concerned about limits by the Arab community, supported by some elements in the British government, to restrict and limit Jew further Jewish immigration. Um, in the 1920s and 30s, the Jewish population in Palestine continued to grow, but the Arab population did as well. And that set the stage, and this is a, a subject that's we talk about further some other time, that, that set the stage for continuing conflict. There were some um, significant riots and attacks um, on Jewish communities in Palestine in 1929, and then in 1936, full-scale Arab revolt against British rule for the next three years. Um, the British government responded with a whole series of white papers, proposals, commissions, back and forth. The general drift of policy was to restrict um, Jewish immigration into Palestine in a series of progressive steps, culminating in the, the final white paper in 1939. Uh, Churchill was opposed to those limitations. He didn't necessarily make it a major political issue because he was um, involved with other things. And then in particular, um, he lost his position in the cabinet in uh, 1929 and was out of power completely. He was a backbencher for the next 10 years. That was his famous so-called wilderness years that um, have been written about. And that really turned his attention at that point to, to something that he thought was a menace to civilization as a whole, which was the rise of Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party in Germany. So, Lee, let's talk for a few minutes about some of um, Churchill's personal relationships. Do you know if he, he ever uh, crossed paths or, or met with Hitler? He didn't, although that was one of the great what-if moments in history. The backstory to that is, as I mentioned, Churchill left government in 1929, remained in the House of Commons as a backbench MP, but, but uh, was stuck in that position for a full 10 years, his wilderness years, as people call it. And he was perhaps the first prominent figure in the Western democracies, certainly the most important one, to recognize the dangers of Adolf Hitler as early as 1930, when the Nazis were still a relatively small party, Churchill went to a dinner at the German embassy in London and kept on asking questions to the um, counselor there, who happened to be the grandson of Bismarck, about the Nazis. And he thought this was very strange. He reported this back to Berlin as, as a strange situation. Why was Churchill asking so many questions about the Nazis? A couple of years later, the Nazis, by the summer of 1932, were the largest party in the Reichstag, and Adolf Hitler, who had been a figure of ridicule a few years before, was now a leader to be reckoned with, and Churchill recognized the menace that a Nazified Germany would um, bring to the entire world, and certainly to Western civilization. In the 1930s, Churchill undertook a major biography of his great ancestor, the first Duke of Marlborough, who had led a coalition of nations against the continental aggressor of that day, which was King Louis XIV of France. And in order to do research for that book, uh, Churchill and his son Randolph, who was then a young journalist, um, took um, a trip to Munich to see the battlefield of Blenheim, where um, his ancestor had fought against the French. 
Um, as it turned out, Randolph had become friendly with Hitler's foreign press aide, a half-American man named um, Putzi Hofstengel. And Randolph suggested to Hofstengel, and Hofstengel agreed, that perhaps Churchill should meet Hitler. And um, Hofstengel embraced this idea and went to Hitler with the proposal, and Hitler agreed somewhat grudgingly. The dinner was set for the next evening, and then in the afternoon, Hofstengel had to come back to Churchill and report that Hitler was not going to be able to come to dinner because he wasn't coming to that hotel that day. And um, they tried to reschedule the meeting, but um, Churchill later reported that for the remaining few days that they remained in Munich, um, Hitler did not appear. Years later, um, Churchill's grandson, who was also named Winston, thought that this reflected the fact that Hitler was simply too afraid to meet with Churchill and might have realized that Churchill would become his great nemesis. And um, Churchill would comment in the House of Commons that year, um, there was a danger of the odious conditions in Germany being extended by conquest to Poland and persecution begun in that area. And that was very prophetic because Poland was to, to be the site of the major Nazi extermination camps. And it was the source of over half the victims of the Holocaust. Um, for the remainder of the 1930s, Churchill became the leading opponent in Britain and in the Western democracies of Adolf Hitler. Um, what would have happened if the two of them had met would have been an interesting moment in history and it never occurred. So, Lee, if he didn't meet Hitler and, and some of the reasoning behind that, which I, I could imagine going up against Churchill would be no small thing. But um, do you know if he ever uh, had a chance to connect up with David Ben-Gurion? Um, he met Ben-Gurion, but not till much later. Um, um, they met in London in 1961, at which point Churchill was quite old and had been retired for five or six years. Uh, Churchill's relationship with Hiram Weizmann was really the most important connection he had with the Zionist leaders in that relationship, as I mentioned in our first installment, began in 1905 and continued on you know, until um, Hein Weizmann eventually died. So that was Churchill's main connection, um, you know, with the Jewish leadership. Do you think that um, the role that Hein Weizmann played in just kind of his relentless political lobbying and and his own kind of being viewed as a statesman uh, was, was pretty influential on Churchill, or was Churchill already bought into this whole thing in regards to the Balfour uh, Declaration, or, or was mainly Heim's uh, influence on on uh, the general uh, population of the political uh, climate at the time? I think Churchill was wedded to the concept of Zionism, even without the in- impact of Weizmann. Um, that said, Heim Weizmann was such an articulate, commanding figure. Um, and actually, during the First World War, there was a shortage of explosive powder in um, for gunpowder in in Britain, and Hein Weizmann came came up with a process to artificially produce cordite, which is an unknown um, chemist, is an ingredient in explosives, and made that available to the British government. And that was something that um, Churchill, who was Minister of Munitions in 1917, very much appreciated. So Weizmann had this. Um, aristocratic bearing, obviously spoke English fluently. So um, I think his impact on Churchill to continue to develop Churchill's own, what you would call philo-Semitism, was, was significant. They did not always agree, and Weizmann had to 
continually lobby and encourage and push Churchill to you know to do more things, take a stand, and that you know that became you know, complex during the Second World War as the Holocaust emerged and um, the plight of the Jews of Europe became that much more desperate, and that's the another you know, large dimension to the whole story of Churchill and the Jews. Right. So, so let's move to the second world war. We have, uh, it begins in September, 1939. Now, where is Churchill at that point? Yeah. Churchill, after his 10 years in the wilderness, as soon as the uh, war breaks out in September, 1939, returns to government actually as first Lord of the Admiralty, um, head of the Navy, which was the same position he had at the beginning of the first world war, 25 years before the war is quiet for the next nine months. And then, you know, yeah, everything breaks loose in May 1940. The Nazis invade Belgium, Holland, and France. France, which had um, resisted for four years bravely in the First World War, falls to the Germans in six weeks. There's a crisis in Britain. Neville Chamberlain, who had been the proponent of appeasement, resigns, and Churchill becomes prime minister. And there's a, a story that was told many years later by an Israeli man named Ben Gale, who recalls May 10th, 1940, being at a lecture in Tel Aviv, and the speaker was interrupted by someone who handed him a note, which he read aloud, and the note said, Winston Churchill has become prime minister. And Ben Gale later recorded that everyone in the large hall stood up and cheered wildly. With Churchill at the helm, there was now hope for the Jews of Palestine. There was hope for the Jews of Palestine who survived the Holocaust, um, the hope for the Jews of um, Europe uh, turned to dust um, with the passage of the history in the next few years. So that was where that's where Churchill comes into the story, um, becomes prime minister at a dire time for the world in the spring of 1940. So then we have, you know, obviously the Holocaust, particularly starting in 1941, really goes, you know, into full swing, so to speak. Churchill, of course, is, you know, basically standing up against Hitler at this point, uh, really alone in Europe. How much at that point does he know about what's going on uh, to the Jews of Europe? And, 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 and to the extent he does, you know, what, what, what can, what does he do about it? Yeah, well, that is really the, um, the $64 question of history, not only as, obviously as it relates to Churchill, but to the allies in general. Churchill as the leader of Britain, Franklin Roosevelt as um President of the United States, the Holocaust begins in earnest in June 1941 when the Nazis invade Soviet Russia and send in mobile killing squads that over the next year murder a million and a half people, not in ghettos and concentration camps and extermination centers, but in the, in the open. It was called, it has been called the Holocaust by bullets. The Nazi extermination plan for the Jews develops further after the Vanze Conference in January 1942, when the detailed plan to exterminate the Jews through killing centers is, is really formulated. Over the next one to two years, that news becomes more and more um, aware. It's publicized in newspapers. Um, the British government intercepts German radio messages that describe what's happening in the Eastern Front. So, the, you know, there, there was a um, sense of history for the first couple of decades after the war that um, the Allied governments didn't really know what was happening to the Jews. And I think we now recognize that there was more information available at the time than you know, we like to think or like to, like to recognize. Um, one of the challenges is what 
could, should, and did the Allies do to help the Jews of Europe. Um, and to some extent, and this is a, um, a historical position that I somewhat agree with, it was a challenge for the Allies. And if you had asked Franklin Roosevelt or Churchill, what is the best thing that the Allies can do to help the Jews of Europe who were being herded into ghetto center extermination centers, the answer always was, win the war as fast as possible, defeat Hitler as fast as possible. And that's, that's true in a certain sense, but the pace of the war wasn't fast enough to save those six million people. There's a great debate historically about what Franklin Roosevelt could have done or should have done. And I, you know, I'm an admirer of Franklin Roosevelt for his leadership of America during the Depression and during the war, but I think you can make a case that his recognition of the plight of the Jews wasn't as acute as it should have been. And unfortunately, what happened in Britain at the time was that even though Britain didn't have the power to um, to stop what was happening in the extermination camps in Poland, Britain did keep the gates of Palestine closed at the time. Churchill argued about this with his cabinet, and people would say, well, why didn't he just overrule everyone and open up the gates? That would have saved some thousands of refugees from Europe, not hundreds of thousands or millions. And the answer was he was the head of a coalition government, not a omnipotent dictator. He, you know, in some cases he was able to um, allow ships with Jewish refugees to make their way uh, towards Palestine. But the policy of the government, unfortunately, was to maintain the provisions of the White Paper of 1939. Um, now we recognize the moral failing that that represented. Um, all that said, um, when the news of Auschwitz in particular became most apparent, which was in the spring and early summer of 1944, when the deportation of the Jews of Hungary was taking place, Churchill asked the American Air Force you know, to bomb Auschwitz and the railroad lines, and that had been requested by Heinrich Weizmann and the Jewish leadership. The aircraft that could have done that were at a U.S. Air Force base in southern Italy that was within flying range of Auschwitz-Birkenau and, in fact, had um, had bombed a industrial facility only five miles from there. And the um, attitude of the American Air Force and the American government was that's a diversion of resources away from a military target. And if we if we attack this you know, labor camp, as they thought it was, we'd kill some of the Jewish prisoners. With the judgment of history, now we know, of course, how you know, the failure to recognize what was happening to the Jews of Europe is a, I would call it a moral failing on the part of the Allied leaders, even at a time when all the resources of Britain, America, Britain and its empire were being devoted to um, the destruction of Nazi Germany. So that's a, that's a complicated, um, challenging subject. And I think... Um, Churchill's admirers, of which I am certainly one, would wish that he had spoken out more, tried to do more um, from 1942 to 1944, especially, which is when the majority of the Jews of Europe were exterminated. Um, whether speaking, speaking out more would not have saved their lives necessarily. And as I mentioned, even opening up immigration into Palestine would have saved a small number, but I think it would have left uh, Churchill and Roosevelt, you know, standing higher in the judgment of history. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. I think so too. Yeah. But it, it, is a, it is a complicated subject and it's um, easy for us 75 years later to say, um, 
it was obvious something should have been done, but what would have been done and what should have been done is a more challenging question. But the moral dimension is still um, is still there and it's still troubling to this day. It's big. It's big. So just before, while we still have the time, I, I really want you to be able to capitalize on this story about Churchill and one of the most famous victims of the Holocaust. Uh, I, I want you to share that story before we run out of time today. Sure. Um, this is a story I only became aware of, um, you know, a few years ago, and I think it sort of encapsulates some of the thinking about Churchill on this subject. It's a story um, about a um, family that was living in occupied Europe during the Nazi um, era. The um, parents of this family listened to the radio all the time to the BBC, which was, of course, you know, illegal in occupied Europe. They had a teenage daughter who kept a diary. And um, she was a high-spirited young woman, and she once wrote in a diary about her parents. Um, they listened to the radio from early in the morning until late at night. It goes on and on, and sometimes um, it's very tiring to me, and it's hard not to be a dull old stick myself. And you can understand her frustrations with the radio going on and on for hours on end. But then she adds in her diary... There is one shining exception, and she continues, a speech by our beloved Winston Churchill is quite perfect. Um, mm. And I think the voice and words of Churchill over the radio and in print did help sustain the, the people of occupied Europe in their hour of trial, and in particular, the Jewish voices who could hear Churchill to the same it might not surprise you to know that the young girl writing in that diary was Anne Frank. Mm. She'd be 91 years old today if she were with us. And sadly, she did not live to her 16th birthday. But to me, that extract from her diary tells me that as much as Churchill's life and accomplishments are controversial and um, not everything he did was perfect, that his voice was heard by someone at a time um, when they were crying out to hear a voice of someone um, in you know, speaking to them in the darkness. Yeah. Wow. So 1948, you know, Israel becomes a state. What is Churchill's role at that point? What is what are his views? How does he relate to to this development? Well, what happened um, in, in Churchill's case is in July 1945, a few months after the surrender of Nazi Germany and just before the surrender of Japan, there's a general election in Britain, the first time in 10 years. And m many people in the world, especially in the United States, assume that Churchill will be reelected overwhelmingly because he's just led Britain through five years of war to victory. And instead of that, the Churchill and the conservative government are defeated you know, resoundingly by the Labour Party under Clement Attlee. And in the twinkle of an eye, Churchill goes from being the prime minister to being the leader of the opposition. Um, and he doesn't return to power as prime minister until the fall of 1951. So during the formative years from 1945 to the independence of Israel in 1948, Churchill is out of office. The Labour Party, and in particular its foreign minister, Ernest Bevan, are anxious to get out of Palestine, but also are anti-Zionist, and some people say in Bevan's case, anti-Semitic. So the British government opposes the solution of creating a Jewish state, and in fact, 
um, the United States and the Soviet Union recognized Israel shortly after its independence, declaration of independence. The British government dragged its feet, I think, for a full year afterwards. Churchill roundly criticized that in the House of Commons. He thought it was um, ironically opposed both the immediate withdrawal of Britain from India, which happened in 1947, as well as um, the failure of the British government to support an independent, the independent Jewish state in 1948. Churchill becomes prime minister again in 1951, serves until 1955, is a, you know, a supporter of Israel and of Zionism. And from that point on, and that continues on through his retirement years, he lived for 10 years after his final retirement. The last quick story is that in um, 1961, he, David Ben-Gurion visited with Churchill in London, Churchill already 87. Supposedly, the two of them had a debate about who was the greater leader, Moses or Jesus. And supposedly, <laughs> Churchill took the side of Moses and Ben-Gurion took the side of Jesus. And I don't, <laughs> I don't know how they resolved that uh, discussion, but it certainly would have been fascinating to be a fly in the wall and to hear these two great men talk about faith, leadership, and history. Yeah, I love that. So our guest this weekend has been Lee Pollock. He's an acclaimed writer, historian, and public speaker on the life and times of Winston Churchill. If you didn't catch last week's broadcast, I want to encourage you to go back and catch that. Uh, you can do that by simply going to teacherandthepreacher.com, and you'll find a list of our archives there, and you can capitalize on that. And, Lee, it's been great to have you with us this weekend. I just wanted to just uh, give people uh, your email address where you can um, they can contact you. Why don't you give that to us real quick? Sure. It's um, L. Pollock, P-O-L-L-O-C-K. My name is Lee Pollock, so L. Pollock at WinstonChurchill.org. And our website, which is full of information about Churchill and history, is WinstonChurchill.org. So I'm happy to respond to um, questions that people have or give them suggestions for additional reading and um, things to um, learn about Churchill and his life. Love that. Well, thank you again for being with us uh, this weekend, Lee. And I want to say thank you to all of our listeners. And thank you to our donors for standing by with us. Check Harold and I out at uh, teacherandthepreacher.com. Write us the old-fashioned way on theteacherandthepreacher at gmail.com. Check out our Facebook page. Always good things there. And until next weekend, may the God of Israel who never slumbers or sleeps, may he watch over Israel and our Jewish friends, and may God bless America. Amen. The Teacher and the Preacher will be back next Sunday for another discussion on how Christians and Jews can come to once again proclaim that the United States is truly a Judeo-Christian nation. To contact the Teacher and the Preacher, email them at theteacherandthepreacher at gmail.com. That's theteacherandthepreacher at gmail.com. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and give you shalom. Shalom.